Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I am a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips and I need your mercy and your grace as does the listener and we pray our Heavenly Father that we might meet tonight um, an awareness of your justice that we might be in some sense terrified at your judgment but indeed blessed by your grace. So please open our blind eyes that we might see and our stuffed up ears so that we might perceive and that we might in the end be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to admit as we begin tonight that I have a love-hate relationship with church music. Uh, and that may disappoint some of you for me to say that, while for others of you, you may agree just a little too strongly with that statement. But no matter what my relationship with church music, my biggest concern is that I don't always sing as Isaiah does in chapter 5, verse 1. We're in chapter 5 of Isaiah. Please keep your Bibles open and look at that with me. Our love of music, the style of music, is in the end purely subjective. And it matters little, except to the person who has particular tastes. So in one sense, I don't really care what we sing. After church this morning, I've got a thousand other things I want to say now. But we Christians, seriously... Sometimes we mess things up, don't we? I mean, out in the world, there are enormous sins, enormous sins that don't always plague our congregations, like theft, like murder, like adultery, um, those big ones. Of course, there are murderers and thieves and adulterers who end up coming to church, and that's a good thing. Good that they come to hear about the grace and the mercy of God and the call for repentance. But you can sit a little proudly in church sometimes, can't you, and think that everything's okay when in fact we are petty and we will argue with one another over our petty tastes, our likes or dislikes that really are just a matter of subjective opinion. Objectively, any song or hymn that is sung without love to God is a complete and utter dirge and you may as well never sing them. Look how Isaiah begins here. He says, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard. Three times. In so many few, in such few words, he keeps saying or speaking of the one he loves. When was the last time you spoke of God in those terms? To speak of him as the one you love. I hear lots of conversations about God in church and outside churches, but rarely hear such an expression when I'm sure I should. 
See, I love God. I love Jesus. Deep within my very core. What about you? Do you ever tell God in your prayers, God, I love you? In a very quiet and intimate moment to say, Lord Jesus, I, I love you. Thank you. I think real Christians do that. Do you tell people around you, both inside church and outside church, that you love the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you love Jesus? You see, I think real Christians do that. And if you are a real Christian, then Isaiah's concerns will be yours. For, Isaiah's loves, for, for Isaiah sings with love, but you might notice that his songs, perhaps not the normal song we would sing in church, because it's not an overly joyous one. It's actually a bitter song that he sings that springs from his love. A very bitter song. Such is his love for God that what he sees in God's people becomes a very bitter pill for him. And in verse 2, we see why. God had established a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke the soil, cleared and planted and built and dug. But here's the thing. He expected to yield good grapes, but the yield was worthless. It only produced bad grapes. Now, we're not talking about a winery like Scott Wright's one on the way up to Glen Innes. We're not talking about a winery like that. We can go and buy a bottle of wine. We're actually talking here of a vineyard that actually is the people of God. Uh, Jerusalem and Judah are the vineyard. You see that in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. You see, that's the vineyard. We're talking about a people. And the question of verse 4 is, from God's perspective, what more could I have done? I mean, he established the vineyard. He built the vineyard. He cleared the vineyard. He planted the vineyard. He built and he dug and he put the people there. What more could he have done? And then you see the question that he asks, why did it yield only bad grapes? which heightens the gravity of the situation, doesn't it? God is absolutely vindicated in the work that he's done. Absolutely vindicated. It's been a good work. But serious questions are asked of the people of the vineyard. Of course, as a modern listener, similar questions could be asked of us following John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, God is absolutely vindicated, isn't he, in his love for us at that point? What more could God have done for the vineyard than to send his one and only son? Of course, in the little parable we read from Mark chapter 12 before, when he did send the son, they killed him, didn't they? You'd have to say the wine's turned pretty bad, very bitter. And it's bitter here as well. And serious questions must be asked of every age as to why people have proved worthless when God has done so much for us. What follows is what you would expect, of course. 
uh, God acts in judgment. And how does God act in judgment? Well, God is going to remove his protections. He's going to tear down the walls of the vineyard, uh, we're told. Um, They want life without him. That's the way Judah is living. Well, that's what God will give them. Uh, And the result is that they will become unprotected, an unprotected vineyard. They will become a trampled wasteland, unpruned, not weeded, full of thorns and without the blessing of rain. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? And that terrifying picture terrifies me in a modern sense because as I see the walls of my own culture, which was built on Judeo-Christian values, coming down all around us every single day. I think to myself, as they come down, are we missing the hand of God's judgment on us? If you think that God's judgment is tough, then you might want to consider what God sees in verse 7 as he looks at this vineyard. Because he looked for justice but saw injustice, for righteousness, but heard cries of wretchedness. And then what Isaiah does is he unpacks this uh, picture of what God sees with a series of woes and therefores, which are frighteningly modern, and word pictures that hold terrifying prospects for us. So let's have a look at them. We're in chapter 5. We're going to look at the woes one by one. Verse 8 sees a nation of greedy land grabbers. Now I imagine, like any economy, as they grabbed for properties and sought to build their property portfolio, that they pushed the prices up. And people were cut out of the market and families wondered, of course, if their children would ever be able to actually own their own property, such as the cost of property. Sound familiar? Of course, this may sound familiar to us, but it was worse in Israel because if you remember the history of Israel, the people of Israel were meant to enjoy an inheritance in the land of God, the land that he had given them. So it's a terrible woe upon them, really. Woe number two is in verse 11 and 12, and uh, this is very modern because it speaks of an alcohol fueled culture, doesn't it? which in verse 12 prevents them from perceiving the Lord's actions and seeing the works of his hands. Alcohol can do that, can't it? It can actually bring a haze. And then after those first two woes come a couple of therefores, which speak firstly of exile and the second one I find chilling in verse 14 Because in one sense they'll be exiled and the exile will come and they'll go into Babylon and and they'll live there for many years from which we get the prophecies of Daniel and, and others. But verse 14 is really chilling. Therefore Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. Got to know that. Therefore Sheol enlarges its throat and opens wide its enormous jaws And down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who carouse in her. Um, Earlier this year, Janine and I and a group of friends, we went up right up to Cape York and uh, went to a place called Sacia. 
and we took a boat out off Sacia and we went fishing. We caught some bluefin tuna uh, and each time we brought these bluefin tuna to the boat, we had a visitor, the largest shark I've ever seen. Now, I've swum with sharks. I've caught a 10-foot tiger shark over on Lord Howe Island. I've seen big sharks, but I've never seen a shark this big. And every time the fish came to the boat, it just came with speed, with jaws that just opened up and swallowed these monstrous fish. And as I stood on the boat, the one thing I could say to my mates was, please don't fall over. But friends, think about my application here for this. For you could fall over and be eaten by a shark, but here, to fall over into Sheol, well, that is a different matter altogether when it comes to the judgment of God. Woe number three is in verses 18 to 19, as sin, you'll notice, is drawn in carts of arrogant defiance. I wish I had more time, sorry. So I'm jumping, I'm hoping you're looking at the text as I speak. But it would appear that people actually just loaded up their life with sin and were basically proudly parading it around, carrying it in carts, not ashamed of it. Woe number four in verse 20 is towards a self-justifying fraudulence of life that sees people calling evil good and good evil. They are like the village idiot that I heard about where um, a man went to a particular village and on his way to the village, everywhere around the village, he saw targets with perfect bullseyes in them everywhere he went. When he got into the village, he saw the chief and he said, you had a remarkable marksman here in this tribe. And he said, no, 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 he said, that's the village idiot. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, what he does is he fires a bullet into the tree and then he draws the target around the bullet hole. And we laugh at that. But friends, people all over Australia are living exactly that way. Firing their lives in a certain direction and drawing the target round it, thinking that they live in perfect ways. And they call good evil and evil good and they glory in their shame. Verse 21 is an unsurprising fifth woe, of course, towards the conceited, the arrogant, the smug, the superior and the narcissistic. They are wise in their own opinion. They are clever in their own sight. While the sixth is a no-brainer as the woe is directed towards those who pervert the course of justice, who go out for their long lunches and wine and dine each other and then for a bribe cheat people. And following these six woes is a number of therefores such of, um, that follow these woes and they are the unmistakable actions of a holy God in bringing judgment, but time does not permit me to take you into those. This is the age of Uzziah the king. You might remember him. Uh, chapter 1 was introduced to the very age in which Isaiah is actually prophesying. It's a period of four kings from Uzziah through to Hezekiah. This is the age of Uzziah and it is one of enormous new wealth. It has produced a wealthy elite who are intoxicated with pleasure and materialism. Does that sound close to us? 
This is where the West, I want to suggest to you, has been shaped by Judeo-Christian values, but has now become, through the blessings of God, rather than honouring God, become the wealthy elite of the world, intoxicated with pleasures and materialism. Of course, that has infected our churches as well, hasn't it? How do I know that? Because it's infected me. But friends, is it possible that the West, in its rejection of Jesus Christ and his values, now stand on the brink of sliding towards the widening jaws of Sheol ourselves? Six woes, but not the last of woes in this section of Isaiah, because a seventh is found in chapter 6. Though it is the last in the sequence of seven woes, it really seems to me to be the first woe in time and gives weight to the other six. I was with Chris the other day. We went out and had coffee. I said, Chris, I don't get the timing of Isaiah. I said, this is one of the reasons why I've kind of not preached on Isaiah all that much because I'm intimidated by Isaiah. Anybody else intimidated by Isaiah? It's a big book, isn't it? But I think what we're dealing with here in chapter 6 is in fact the conversion and and commissioning of Isaiah himself, but it's put in chapter 6, but it actually is something that affects the first six chapters. So I think this woe comes first in time, though it is the last in the sequence. So we've seen what's happening nationally, now we reflect on what's happening personally for Isaiah. And we are immediately taken to the core of things in verse 1. Do you see it there? The earthly king, Uzziah, died while the Lord is seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple like no other king. In fact, it was King Uzziah and his presumptuous attempt to fill the temple with himself in 2 Chronicles 26 that saw him break out in leprosy and now in Isaiah chapter 6 records his death. The theme really is a no-brainer here. In a clash of authority in your life, who will be the ruler? An earthly king or a divine king? Who, who will be your king? Will it be you or will it be the true king? Well, the earthly king died and the heavenly king was seated high and lofty on his throne and his robe filled the temple. What follows certainly answers, of course, that question about who will be king for Isaiah. The imagery is enormous. The Lord we see is seated while the seraphim standing are standing in his service. Um, they, they are referred to as the burning ones um, in books. Uh, they were regarded as the highest order of creature in heaven associated with light, with loving zeal and with purity. All the things that were missing from the vineyard that God had built. They covered their faces, these uh, seraphim, uh, 
with two wings, they covered their feet with two wings, and they flew with two wings. But is that all that important? It probably is a little important, but what's really important is what they say. Their words are words that bring conviction. See verse 3? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. Now, I don't know if you picked up the difference here. His robe filled the temple, but his glory fills the whole earth. Don't think for a moment that God can be contained within a building. In fact, don't think God can be contained. His robe might fill the temple, but his glory fills the earth. If you think applicationally for a moment, you might say, well, oh, this is this, Judah, they were really bad. And the temple back there, that's very important. But what has it got to do with me? Well, the one who sits in the temple, his glory fills the earth and it has everything to do with you and has everything to do with me. There is not a place on the planet where his glory does not fill. In fact, in this congregation, there are many people from many different places around the world and some of you who are travelling the world and God's glory fills every single corner of it. But we see, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Did I have enough holies there or one too many? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. And then we read verse 4, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, the only picture I've got of that that can capture that for me in just the smallest possible way was sitting on a beach with my son building sandcastles down near Foster when he was a very little boy. And two F-111s came across at about 200 metres above our heads and I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but you hear nothing till they're almost right above you. And the whole thing went boom. And the earth shook. And a little boy launched himself into his father's arms with the kind of hug I haven't had since. <laughs> and friends, that is of course the right response for us all when it comes to the God who can shake the very earth on which we stand. It's the only right response, isn't it? To throw yourself, even terrified, into the arms of the Father. Note the description of the Lord of hosts here, will you? It's the only time this description of God, uh, sorry, it's the only description of God in the Bible repeated three times in a row. There are many descriptions of God in the Bible. God is love. Um, God is merciful. He's gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love. But did you notice this is the only time where it's repeated three times, a description of him? Holy, holy, holy. We don't often preach on holiness, do we? Oh, kind of there, but we don't often focus on holiness we love sermons on the love and the mercy and the grace of God, don't we? We really love that. But here's the one time in the Bible where a description of God is repeated three times. I think we're probably meant to pay attention to that, aren't we? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. 
How might you describe your own life? Unholy, unholy, unholy. And in the presence of God, even the seraphs at this point humbly cover their faces and their feet. And it would seem that before the holiness of God, a seraph makes the right response. He responds with reverence. He responds with service and a worshipful praise, which, of course, is what we should do. Now, what's Isaiah doing at this moment? What would you be doing at this moment if you were confronted by such a scene? What would you do? Well, Isaiah does the one thing that we probably all should do and he actually declares the seventh woe as the conviction of God's greatness brings forth in Isaiah a confession. Verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You notice in that Revelation passage that when John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loves, sees Jesus in his glorified state, do you remember what he did? He fell down as though dead. I always look at that passage and I think to myself that for me that's the scariest passage in the entire Bible. There are plenty of scary passages in the Bible, but that's a scary one because John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. You'd think that when he saw Jesus and Jesus saw John, you'd think it would be chummy, wouldn't you? You'd think it'd be, hey, mate, how you going? It's been great. I've missed you. But he sees the glorified Jesus and he falls down as though dead. You know what that tells me? That when we see the incarnate Jesus, it really, his glory is at least in some sense veiled in all its fullness. That he shows us any of his glory and we survive is amazing. And Isaiah, I think, feels the same here. National repentance is certainly needed in the first six woes in chapter 5. Did you notice that? Really, they need to repent, don't they? The whole nation. When I come to prayer meeting here on Monday morning with a group of people at 8.15, Simon's usually here, he kind of heads it up. Um, There's a man that comes with us, his name is John Faithful. And what does he pray every week, Simon? What does he pray for every week? And be a great revival would come. Every week he prays it. Sometimes I've prayed it quickly, that prayer, to cut him off because I figured you can't have all the good prayers, John. All right? And so, um, but he prays it every single week and every time he prays it, you know what I think? John, if that prayer is going to be answered, it has to begin with me. Revival must start with me. Repentance must start with me. National repentance is certainly needed, but national repentance begins with personal repentance like that in Isaiah's seventh woe. Now, I hope you noticed here that in the presence of God, degrees of sin do not matter to Isaiah here. Now, I don't imagine that Isaiah the prophet was out binge drinking. I don't imagine that he was purchasing up property to kind of secure his future. 
I don't imagine he pulled a cart that was full of sin and was boastful about it. I don't think Isaiah would have been calling good evil and evil good. But what does he do? He makes no comparison with others in the nation, but in the presence of a holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. The only thing he sees is his own uncleanness. And he repents. But what follows in verse 6 leaves Isaiah in no doubt either about the stunning nature of the grace of this holy, holy, holy God to cleanse him. Now here's the good news, okay? That's good news. Look at it there in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Now, I don't know about you, uh, the thought of somebody touching my lips with a burning coal doesn't really sound all that attractive to me. But when I read that, if that could happen to me and it removed my wickedness and atoned for my sin, you can pour a whole lot of coals on my mouth. There's nothing I would desire more than that. I want to plead with you to note three things out of this little couple of verses. Firstly, notice where the coal is taken from. It's taken from the altar, that place of sacrifice in the temple where God's robe fills the temple and where he's seated. Uh, That glowing coal comes, is taken, and it removes wickedness and atones for sin. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing uh, you need to notice here is it could never be more obvious that Isaiah is cleansed not by his own efforts, but by the grace of God. Can't be, more, can't be more obvious than that. Now, friends, the God of the Old Testament, I want you to hear this, is the God of the New Testament. All right? My dad, great man, I love my dad, but he, at the moment he's dementiaed and um, very, very old. But when he was more clear-minded, he would often say to me, I read my Bible, but I find the God of the Old Testament. He's not the God of the New Testament. I'd say, Dad, you're not reading the Bible correctly. You need to understand the holy, holy, holy nature of God, but you also need to see that he's doing something in his plans for the salvation of people and to pour forth grace and mercy that is undeserved. And here is a perfect passage to actually make that very clear. Here are a people who deserve only judgment. And that's what Isaiah expects. Woe is me, for I am ruined. That's what he expects. But what does he get? He gets grace from the living God. Now the third thing I want you to notice here is the significance of lips because I think there is a significance here in the seraph touching Isaiah's lips because in the midst of such a great personal salvation for Isaiah God is actually looking for a messenger did you notice that in verses 8 to 13 as they were read I mean it's extraordinary how clear the voice of God becomes for somebody who's found conviction confession and cleansing And Isaiah hears God very clearly. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who will I send? Who will go for us? 
And it's extraordinary how clear one's direction in life becomes when they have been convicted, confessed and cleansed. Isaiah says, well, here am I. Send me. But Isaiah's commission is not an easy one in verses 9 and 10, is it? The message given him is one of judgment. The age to which he preaches is a hardened age. One that even the most faithful preacher would find difficult to preach in. And it's a tough message too, isn't it? Because it's a message of judgment. It's, I feel like the Apostle Paul um, is influenced by Isaiah at this point, And I, the Apostle Paul was significantly influenced by the work of Isaiah. But when the Apostle Paul speaks about the gospel, he says, when we proclaim the gospel, we are to some the sweet fragrance of life, but at the same time the stench of death. For as you proclaim the gospel, it separates people. Some for life and some for death. It brings a, a, a conviction, a confession, a cleansing, while for others it brings a hardening and a dulling of the heart. It's an age... Um, that Isaiah preaches to without the conviction of the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. And without conviction, his age is an age without confession, where Isaiah's preaching only serves to further dull and deafen the listener, leaving them uncleansed and unable to find healing. And I'm not surprised that Isaiah asks of this ministry, and here's his question, until when, Lord? How long have I got to do this for? Can I say, I dare say Chris Brennan's asked that question. Don't know for sure. I dare say Simon Reeves has asked this question. I can tell you that Rick Lewis has asked the question. Because it's a bit like, I think again, the response of the Apostle Paul when he's confronted with this proclamation of the gospel to a world like this. He says, who is sufficient for this task? And I ask that question almost every day. How long, Lord, am I going to have to do this for? And the answer here for Isaiah is until every security is stripped away, leaving great emptiness in the land in verse 12. What a task. He's going to preach judgment until every security is stripped away and there's only emptiness left. But never underestimate God's calling on your life, will you? Never underestimate the power of this message because stripped of security... And filled with emptiness is a great place to start to find the seed of hope or to look for the seed of hope. And the thin thread of that hope is given us in verse 13. As a tree chopped down leaves a stump, so as Judah is chopped down in judgment, God will leave a stump, a remnant. And associated with that remnant would be a seed of new growth. And as we read on in Isaiah, you'll soon realise that this seed is a child of Jesse. He is of, royal, of the royal family of David. He's a child of promise who will be king. And the best of kings. He will be King Jesus. The holy king and the one who comes from the altar of the cross to bring cleansing to atone for sin and remove wickedness of course to reject him because he is God's final word 
to the world would be the end of all hope. So what application might we draw from that? Don't reject Jesus. Put him first. Isaiah was a man with a big vision of God, verse 1, a deep awareness of his own sinfulness in verse 5, a profound experience of God's grace in verse 7, and a willingness to spend and be spent in God's service no matter what the cost in verse 8. And as I read that, I think, may God help me to be more like Isaiah. May God help us tonight to find conviction before the holiness of God the confession of our sins and the cleansing coal from the sacrificial altar of the cross that actually lays upon us a commission to go into all the world and to proclaim Jesus. To proclaim Jesus in a world full of woes. Well, friends, to finish, what I want you to do is turn with me to chapter 12. Sadly, I can't preach right up to chapter 12. I haven't got enough weeks to do that. Maybe we'll come back to it. But it would be a shame not to come to chapter 12 because this is the direction in which Isaiah is heading and chapters 1 to 12 is a fairly key section of Isaiah and this is how it finishes. And I want to bring us here because I don't want you going home feeling wretched unless you need to be wretched, to feel wretched. Because most of you, I dare say, love the Lord Jesus. You struggle with sin, but you've given your life to him. You live every day praying that God would help you to repent. But look at chapter 12. Because I think this is Isaiah's song. It's certainly my song. And you know what? The music's irrelevant. The words are totally important, aren't they? Isn't Isn't that the case with all songs? It's nice to have nice music. I love nice music. But when we're doing church music, who gives a hoot what the music is? It's the words that are all important and the heart that meets those words. Look at what it says here. A song of praise. On that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away and you have had compassion on me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. And yea, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully joyfully draw waters from the springs of salvation. And on that day you will say, Give thanks to Yahweh. Proclaim his name. Celebrate his works among among the peoples. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to Yahweh, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizens of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. May God help us to understand these things. Amen.